Hi, this is Jamie from Knoxville, Tennessee. Jed Bartlett is my president is a Chipperish media production and is entirely funded by listeners like you. To support Chipperish and gain access to exclusive content, please visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Thanks. Hi, and welcome to Jed Bartlett is My President, a podcast about the West Wing and denial. My name is Lonnie Diane Rich, and every week I take an in-depth look at an episode of the West Wing along with a special guest. And for a little while, we pretend that the worst thing happening in the White House right now is the president's inability to complete a radio address in less than 24 hours. This week's episode is, and it's surely to their credit, the fifth episode of season two, and here to talk with me about it is my special guest, Rob DiCristino. Rob DiCristino is a high school English and film study teacher in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He previously hosted the film podcast, The Ugly Club, and is currently a columnist and occasional podcast host at fthismovie.net, which I think is one of my favorite website names ever, ever. I wish I'd thought of it first. You can follow him on Twitter at Rob DiCristino. Welcome, Rob. Hey, Lonnie. It's great to be here talking about one of my absolute favorite things in the whole world, The West Wing. I am so excited to have you here. So tell me about your history podcasting. You do like movie podcasts and stuff? Yeah. So um, for a couple of years, I, I produced a po- film podcast with my friends called The Ugly Club. And uh-huh. uh, uh, right now I am podcasting and uh, I'm a columnist at a absolutely wonderful website called fthismovie.net. Uh, please check us out. Um, we are one of the best film communities on the internet. If you like movies of any kind, any shape, uh, we have some of the best podcasters and the best writers, I believe, on the internet. Um, and we have a ton of fun. So please check us out there if you'd like. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm absolutely going to check that out. I just love the name of the website. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Okay, so my question for you this week is, if you had a choice between facing down General Barry or Lionel Tribby, which one would you choose and why? And remember that Lionel Tribby carries a cricket bat. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I have a I have a ton of respect for people who have served in the military, and you know, I never served myself, but mm-hmm. um, and it's something I know absolutely nothing about. So even General Barry, with his weird sort of straw man villain kind of mm-hmm. not niceness, um, yes. he would scare me senseless, and I would I would have nothing. I would I would just sit down on the ground and just and just curl up into a ball. Um, yeah, Lionel Tribby, on the other hand, is the kind of like blowhard political mind i'd be totally happy to go 12 rounds with I, I would totally love to argue with him about policy and about civil rights and about all the crazy things and you know i can dodge a cricket bat so i'll be all right all right <laughs> you're spry on your feet right <laughs> <laughs> well i think that's a really really good answer and i think that honestly just because he carries the cricket bat we didn't actually see him hit anybody with it so i think it'd probably be okay that's a great point <laughs> All right. This episode aired on November 1st, 2000, with a teleplay by Aaron Sorkin and story by Laura Glasser and Kevin Falls. This episode was directed by Christopher Missiano, who directed 35 episodes of the show over the course of its run. So he knows the whole West Wing drill. I don't know if anybody's done more walk and talks than Christopher Missiano. And anyone who has watched even a sampling of Aaron Sorkin's work knows how much he loves musical theater with a specific passion for the works 
of Gilbert and Sullivan. In the second episode of Studio 60, there was a memorable take on I am the very model of a modern major general from the Pirates of Penzance, and it is kind of strange how many Sorkin characters have such a, a huge command of the works of Gilbert and Sullivan on the tips of their tongues, including Sam, Lionel Tribby, and Ainsley Hayes. As a matter of fact, there are quite a few sly references to Gilbert and Sullivan throughout the run of West Wing. Uh, not enough for a suitable drinking game, but definitely enough to be amusing when they pop up. So everybody should keep their eye out for those. All right. I think we are ready to go to the synopsis. In this episode of The West Wing, Josh and Sam consider suing all the racist organizations that incited his shooters to try to kill the president. Donna tries to wrangle Bartlett through his weekly radio address. Ainsley Hayes joins the team and endures unwarranted abuse. CJ takes on a three-star general and wins. The president and the first lady are cleared for sexual takeoff. And everyone in The West Wing has an uncanny command of Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, we hit upon this idea of, of duty as a theme in this episode, and Leo even states it outright. He is an Englishman. It's from Pinafore. Trippy says it's from Penzance, by the way. It's from Pinafore. He says it's the one about duty. They're all about duty. Um, and so I found that to be really interesting because I think we've got a lot of incidents of, of people who are, are really thinking about their duty and, and what it is that they need to do. What did you think about that? Oh, I loved it. And, and, I, and I think it's something that I really, you know, I've seen this episode I don't know, 30 or 40 times. And, <laughs> and, but, but it is amazing the way you see all of those story threads all come back to the same place. I mean, whether yeah. it's, you know, Ainsley or, or even um, even Jed in terms of General Barry and mm -hmm. uh, CJ in terms of putting her personal feelings aside and Leo and Josh, especially with the, mm -hmm. with the KKK and all that. Everyone is sort of forced to put their personal feelings aside or at least their personal agendas aside and kind of understand that they're serving something bigger than themselves. And um, I love that running sort of, we, we keep returning to Gilbert and Sullivan and, mm -hmm. and all that. It's one of the ones about duty and, you know, they're all about duty. And and, <laughs> and this show really is, especially this particular episode, really is about that. And um, I think it's really interesting that each and every one of these characters, you know, even though the, and, and something I, I really like about this episode in particular is that while the story elements maybe, or the, the particular elements of each little plot bit are so different and so disparate they all are about duty in just in different ways about people putting aside their difference or it's not their differences but their personal agendas and serving the thing that's better than themselves and the characters that don't do that are the ones who are so clearly evil and so clearly bad and so clearly wrong and it's and it so reaffirms the things that we believe about um that responsibility Oh, yeah. No, we even get this with Abby, right? Because Abby is coming to the president. We have this whole like weird sitcom -y thing with her and the president, you know, cleared for sexual takeoff. <laughs> and even like when he, you know, disparages Nellie Bly, she sticks to her duty as a feminist and schools him hard on that. And he doesn't get sex until he does the radio address correcting all of these, you know, all <laughs> of these ideas. Yeah, about these about these women who absolutely deserve recognition and don't often get it. Um, you know, we have Leo being so kind and so welcoming to Ainsley, although I don't think that's all duty. I think that he would do that anyway. I think that that's the kind of guy he is. Um, but I like that. I like that he brings her in, you know, and he says, Ainsley, don't worry about Sam or Josh and Toby or CJ or the Democrats on the Hill or the Republicans on TV. 
You're here to serve the president. Anyway, welcome to the White House. And that's such a great moment for Leo and for Ainsley, who, by the way, I think is fantastic in this episode. And I think probably out of all of these stories is the most like strongly aligned with this whole theme of duty. Ainsley Hayes is, I mean, and I love this show and I love all the people on this show and this show inspire. I mean, every day I, I have to watch the West Wing all the way through once a year. If I'm going to keep yeah. my mind uh, <laughs> as a high school teacher, I'm going to keep my sanity. Uh, oh, sure. Remember <laughs> why I'm doing what I'm doing. But Ainsley Hayes is one of those pure, like she's, I don't, I don't know if I say this, but she's kind of Republican lesbian, Leslie Nope. I'm not yes, sure. Absolutely. Right. She's like a policy wonk. And she's so sort of committed to, even that she doesn't necessarily mind if she's sort of maybe socially a little bit awkward, but she is mm-hmm. so she has such a strong heart and she has such a strong perspective and she's and she's brave and she's and and she it's like she's lived this entire life as this tiny little beautiful Republican woman and she knows mm-hmm. all of the terrible things that can come up in her face when that happens. Um, yes, we'll, we'll probably get into the my, one of my favorite lines: the hiring of blonde and leggy fascists oh, uh, yes. that Lionel Trivi brings up. <laughs> dealt with that for so long, but she is so extraordinarily qualified for her job mm-hmm. that she has no trouble pushing through anything she needs to push through. Um, and she really ends up illustrating that sense of duty, I think, to everyone, including Sam and CJ by the end of this episode, um, which makes her th- th- this might be the one of the best uses of this particular character, especially considering she's the counterpoint. You know, mm-hmm. she's the Republican side, which is, you know, a lot of people accuse the West Wing of, I remember it used to being called the left wing because yes. some people thought that it was, it was so, you know, in the, in the tank for, for democratic politics. But, you know, I, I think that, I think that Ainsley Hayes is a great example of a, of a, of a thinking conservative. She's a smart person and she knows what she's doing mm-hmm. and she, and she is able to call these guys out when they're being petty and partisan and, 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 do, and not quite you know maybe losing track of the uh of the mark yeah well she has this ability which i love and i've seen this not just in this episode but in every episode with her that she has this ability to express these conservative ideals from the ideal you know which is something that you can respect when it becomes about partisan politics when it's just about beating the other guy and doing anything you can to do that that's when both sides are at their at their worst. But the one thing I love about the West Wing is that whether it is representing, and I mean, you know, I will absolutely, you know, completely acknowledge that that the West Wing does more often, you know, lean toward, of course, the left side of, of the aisle. They are, you know, it's a democratic um, administration, and that's obviously where the politics are. But we often get, you know, conservative characters who come in and make really strong, really great really highly earnest and idealized arguments. I think that it's it's that that gives me the the greatest sense of peace when I'm dealing with exactly. the West Wing because in real life we have become so 
so highly, you know, um, partisan that it's, it's at the point where if anybody who is from the other side speaks, we instantly ignore everything they have to say. And nobody's speaking from the ideals. And the thing is, is that while I absolutely, I mean, anybody who's listening to me knows I have a very, I'm very liberal leaning politically. Um, it is such a wonderful breath of fresh air to hear the arguments from the idealized side, the idealized side of the conservative argument, because I can completely respect that and enjoy that kind of intellectual debate. And it's something that we're, we're missing in the real world, which is why I take one hour a week to just dive into the West Wing and to live in this place of, of earnest idealism, which I absolutely love. I, I'm here all the time. This is my world. Jed Bartlett is always my president. And yes. I don't think of anything else. There are no other people, no other things. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, another thing I wanted to talk about is this this whole Gilbert and Sullivan thing, which I found fascinating because I don't know if I have ever been in a workplace where so many people can just, you know, off the top, off the tips of their tongues, just, you know, go about with Gilbert and Sullivan and be pedantic about it and tell whether, you know, this one is from is from HMS Pinafore or the Pirates of Pinafore. But one of the things that that I love about Aaron Sorkin, he graduated from Syracuse University, which is where I work and where I teach, um, in 1983 with a degree in musical theater. So he has, you know, a grounding in musical theater, and he understands all of these. And obviously is a huge fan of Gilbert Sullivan, because Gilbert Sullivan pop up in pretty much everything he does. But one of the things that I really love about Aaron Sorkin is his command of the dialogue. As a matter of fact, with Sorkin scripts, you know, ad-libbing is absolutely not allowed. Like the characters have to speak exactly the way that he lays it out for them. Because there is a rhythm and a music to his dialogue that you just don't get from other writers. And I mean, I really think of him more as a musical composer in the way that he approaches dialogue. Um, And I was wondering if you'd had any thoughts about that. Have you noticed that about his work? Oh my God! It's it's. It, I mean, he's one of the people who inspired me to write myself, and he he's one mm-hmm. of the people that inspired me just in terms of his his. You know, you mentioned the musical notes, and I just I wrote down one line that Donna has. Um, uh, it's when uh, she's talking to Josh about the president's troubles with the uh, the address, and she mm-hmm. says, "Take seventeen looked like it was going to be a keeper till he went on elocution safari during the word protuberance." And I was like. That is the most Aaron Sorkin thing that has ever been written because it, it, it really is requires such a mastery of of of, of tone and execution mm. on the actor's part, and there's a wonderful rhythm. I remember a couple years back, um, Aaron Sorkin wrote a, a brief article. I think it was for GQ about mm-hmm. that opening uh, scene in the newsroom. Oh uh, yeah, oh Will, I Will love McAvoy that, thing. and yes. it's wonderful. And I am. And I've shown that to students, and because it is music. I mean, Aaron Sorkin writes music. He is a musician. Mm -hmm. His dialogue is music, and he's one of the people who, you know, when I was growing up, it was it was it was Joss Whedon, and it was Kevin Smith, and it was Aaron Sorkin, and it was these guys who Mm -hmm. wrote this musical dialogue that pushed the the drama in a way that was uh, that was had a rhythm to it. And I Mm -hmm. absolutely agree that his. Um, there, there are a lot of examples of that. Even in the confrontation between CJ and General Barry, there's a music to it. Oh, there's there a, is. There's a rhythm. And, and you know, for, with all due respect to actors and stuff and, and the idea of getting comfortable in a scene, you know, if a screenwriter does write something so particularly uh, paced and, 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 and you, you kind of have to adhere to that. And I think yeah, you absolutely of, do. 
I think a lot of the actors on the show would probably agree that like they see the results mm-hmm. of all that memorization and all that, you know, maybe the blocking of the scene and the pacing things out and the long walk and talks and all mm-hmm. that. And, and it absolutely produces, I mean, just for my money, some of the best results in all of television. Um, yeah, Sorkin is honestly one of the world's greatest geniuses, and his dialogue is absolutely just musical. I mean, it, he really is a composer when it comes to dialogue. And while I think Joss Whedon has some of that, and there are some other writers who definitely have some of that, Sorkin is the only person I've ever seen do it to this extent. It's it's yeah. unbelievable. Absolutely agree. Absolutely. I mean, Sorkin is, is just the master of this. And there's a there's a certain degree to which the West Wing, and I think you see this when, you know, uh, speaking a, a little bit about the later seasons in which Sorkin was not as involved or as yeah. involved, mm-hmm. you lose a lot of that music. And it becomes one of the reasons why I, I, I gravitate more toward the first four seasons yep. is because the rest of it feels like someone trying to reproduce Aaron Sorkin rather than it being that mad genius of Aaron Sorkin yeah you know in in the later seasons we do get that we get kind of some of the things that that the West Wing does um, but it becomes high much more highly serialized you know we end up in these in these longer like more extensive over you know seasons and and a bunch of episodes these stories that kind of span Um, and and you just sort of miss everything feels like it's in a flatter tone it doesn't harmonize the way that Sorkin dialogue harmonizes harmonizes it doesn't have that that pep you know so I enjoy the later seasons as well I mean there's there's definitely stuff in there that I enjoy and that I think is really well done um but but yeah overall it does feel almost like two different shows because the the music just sort of you know leaves and and I mean honestly like Sorkin is the only writer I can think of who writes music with dialogue that way. Like, I've never seen anybody else do it like that. So to say that, you know, these other people came in and they failed to do that doesn't really take anything away from them because it's like failing to be Mozart. Only Mozart can be Mozart. You know? Oh, absolutely. I'm thinking, sorry, I, got, I'm getting, I know we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but I'm, That's thinking, right. I'm thinking of Ainsley's uh, speech at the end. Do you think there's any chance that you could be rude to me tomorrow? Tomorrow is Saturday. I will be here. You can call me and be rude by phone, or you can stop by and do it in person. Because I think if I have to endure another disappointment today from this place that I have worshipped, I am going to lose it. Oh, it absolutely is. And it's such a beautiful thing. So let's go ahead and and pop ahead and talk a little bit about um, Ainsley, played, of course, by the amazing Emily Proctor, who I love. Apparently, Ainsley Hayes was originally supposed to be from Montana, but because that South Carolina came through so strong, they they changed her her state of origin, which I think was a really, really good call to let uh, let Emily Proctor kind of utilize that, that lovely Southern twinge to her voice, which I think is just... Just beautiful. Um, and I love the fact that she is, I mean, one of the things that that we are definitely going to be talking about in this episode and that I talk about in pretty much episode of <laughs> Chad Bartlett is my president, you know, are the struggles that we have sometimes with writing our female characters, you know, um, and Ainsley Hayes comes in. She's so strong. She's so smart. She's got wonderful chemistry with Sam, but they're not trying to like force this romance, which is something that they did with Mallory, which really didn't work. Um, and I 
I love that she can come in as a representation of both women and a smart conservative and represent really well in that space. Um, and I love her passion. I love the way that she is so excited about being in the White House and then has this heartbreaking day, you know, um, and it's it's just I love, I think, everything about this character. She is honestly one of my favorites throughout the run of the West Wing. Completely agree, and 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 we. I guess maybe we should touch on a little bit of the, you know, uh, I mentioned before. Lionel Tribby talks about blonde and leggy fascists, and, and yes. Toby. Toby talks a little bit in his in his discussion with CJ, which I love CJ in this episode, and I know we'll mm-hmm. talk about CJ because CJ just rules, and she always yes. does. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says, "Have you noticed that I'm one of the few people around here whose nose hasn't been out of shape over Ainsley Hayes?" Yeah, listen. I'm serious. You heard the news and you slammed the door so hard it broke. Okay. You heard the news and you broke the White House. Yeah, but I'm over it now and I'm saying other people aren't and they should get over it. See what I can do in the meantime. I'm going to tell you something, Toby. I don't think it's that she's a Republican. I think it's that she's a Republican woman and she's good looking. Well, those are three things when in combination you usually spell careerism. Well, I think it's sexist in a bad way and I'm coming down on her side. You know, unfortunately, we have a lot of examples of that. You know, we have you look at the Fox News roster Mm -hmm. and you see nothing but these beautiful blonde women. There's nothing wrong with that. But but you you can't help but wonder, like, gee, you know, why are these women being hired? And and is it the same kind of thing that that Ainsley Hayes has to deal with, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that she's so extraordinarily qualified for her position? Right. And I like like the way that CJ turned around on that, too, because, of course, last week she was not excited about this at all. This was not a good idea. She broke the White House. She did. She was so angry. (laughs) No, but 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 and then Toby has that, you know, wonderful thing. And I'd like to ask you about it where he says, by the way, you are a beautiful woman. And no one around here has ever assumed you were either ambitious or stupid. Toby? Yeah. Took two years. And that is such a that is such a a wonderful moment. And and for all of the trouble we've had so far on on the run of Jed Barl is my president talking <laughs> about Aaron Sorkin and his and his depiction of women. Mm-hmm. And you know, you even talked a little bit uh, um, on an earlier episode about his amb- or his complete sort of. Uh, uh, ignorance when it comes to divert the diversity issue. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. that line isn't written by someone who's completely oblivious. No, it's you really know? not. Um, and what I find interesting is that, and the thing that makes me forgive Sorkin so easily, you know, for the things is that one, I think that he genuinely is trying. Two, I think that when people tell him that this is a problem, instead of digging in his heels and being like, no, I'm writing it this way and I'm a man and blah, blah, blah. I think he tries to listen. And I think he he genuinely makes an effort to do better. We have in this episode so many strong women. We even go to this thing with Abby and the president, you know, during their their sitcom sexual escapades, you know. Um, we go to this thing where she is talking to him about Nellie Bly, who is one of the most amazing women in the history of, of everybody. I mean, she's just incredible. And she talks about all of these women who don't get monuments and who don't get, you know, songs written about them and who don't get spoken of. We speak of the men, but we don't speak of the women. And then we end on this note with the president where he's doing his radio address about all these women who really deserve to get the credit. 
you know, for what they've done when they usually don't get that kind of attention. So I, I find this to be really fun. Another thing I noticed in this episode is that we have a complete absence of Teladonna's, which, of course, are the the scenes, the walk and talks in which typically a man, most often Josh, explains something in the government to typically a woman, most often Donna. <laughs> Um, And we don't have any of those. We don't have anybody explaining anything to the women. The women are in charge in this episode. And um, and I kind of really love it. They are. Donna has a great little bit of business in this episode, which Mm -hmm. early on in the run of the series, you know, obviously no spoilers, but Donna's role will become quite significant over the course of the Mm -hmm. series. Um, But this is a great way. I love the idea of her separating from Josh a little bit in terms of her her responsibilities. She leads the radio address, and it's a great way to sort of start expanding the scope of her capability and showing off Mm -hmm. her capability, showing off her influence, showing off how you know, good she is at her job. She has the little thing with the joke and all that. And she, you know, she wants Sam's approval there. But that's, I think, to me, more of building a thread of friendship with Sam. I think there's this conscious Mm -hmm. effort to build this friendship with Sam so that she's not exclusively just a person who only interacts with Josh. Exactly. uh, Which which sometimes happens. But Mm -hmm. I love that moment in the, in early, the early part where she does the jokes and the jokes don't go well and all that. But she has that banter back and forth with the president. And then at the same time, um, when she's walking with Sam, there's that moment where Sam forgets the statute that was cited, 9336, mm-hmm. 4336, and yeah. Donna remembers it. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's one of those great examples of like the sort of expertise being maybe a little bit under underappreciated. But Donna knows when she has to pick up the slack from the men around her, and she's mm-hmm. able to keep them in check. And it's not super satisfying for her yet maybe she's sort of struggling to start and getting her influence going but this is if you look at the entire run of the series you see donna grow so much and i think this is a wonderful place um a wonderful effort to kind of start that or at least continue that in an early stage yeah, I mean, here we are. It's the second season. It's the fifth episode. We're still fairly early in the run of the show. And we are seeing this evolution in the way women are dealt with as characters in the show. One of the things that I did notice, uh, last week's episode was about the U.S. Poet Laureate, which is the 17th episode of season three. Um, and it has a story credit to Laura Glasser, who also coincidentally has a story credit on this episode and on another episode, the women of Kumar that I'll be discussing later in the season. Um, I find that really interesting. And I do wonder if perhaps Laura Glasser's had a very good influence on the ways in which women are written in the episodes that she engages with. She's only does she does story uh, credit. She has story credit from like five episodes. I don't think she ever writes an actual script or anything. Um, But I, I find that to be kind of an interesting thread running between two episodes in a row that I've talked about on Jed Bartlett is my president that actually have really strong roles for women and a really strong treatment of women. So I don't know. I'm not going to say it's all her, but I do find that to be kind of like a a nice coincidental thread. Um, One of the things that we have in here um, 
with uh with Ainsley Hayes at the end we have this moment where um where she gets that uh that horrible dead bouquet with the card that says bitch from Brookline and Joyce you know and Sam gets yeah. upset and then of course you know we have her getting abused by these guys we have her getting treated horribly this whole day it's been a terrible day for Ainsley and then Sam runs off and he's the one who saves the day he's the one you know we have the man run out and and kind of um, you know, fix everything. He and Lionel Tribby, right? Um, and that's one of the things that kind of like, in some ways, I think you can look at that and say, you know, they're damseling Ainsley, right? They're, you know, they're making her into this this powerless little mouse who needs a man to go out and and protect her. Um, I don't know that I necessarily see it that way. What do you think? I I I want to be hyper conscious of that. Like I, like I, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up on this show and I love this show deeply. But I'm also trying to be like a good millennial and and really be sure. aware of when these things. Um, to me, I look at this primarily as a writer, and I say, you know what, Sam's the one who has the conflict with her. Mm-hmm. Sam's the one who was embarrassed by her on Capital Beat, you know, a couple episodes back. Right. He's the one who primarily had has this sort of back and forth with her, and he's the one who's really not so great to her in that moment right before he discovers the flowers, and and I and rather than you know look at it in terms of well maybe you know CJ or or someone maybe another woman or maybe if. Ainsley had stood up for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're serving something different in this moment. We're serving the story and we're serving Ainsley being made part of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful moment with Sam. Um, this is one of my favorite Sam scenes, the Joyce and Brookline scene at the end where he signs yeah. the thing and all that. But um, aside from just signing his name and you're fired and all that, there's a moment where he says to the guys, he says, Do you have any idea how big of a harassment suit you just exposed us to? She just... She works here. And it's like, it's such a wonderful affirmation of like, guys, we're all in this together. We're all doing this and she's here and she works here. And that means you give her your respect. That means we assume something about her that maybe we assumed about you, meaning Joyce and Brookline, mm-hmm. that wasn't true. And so you're fired. So get the heck out of here. <laughs> and Ainsley deserves our respect because of that. And I think it's important. Um, you know, we get to the end where they have the little party for her in her office. And it's yeah. like, it's very important, maybe outside necessarily of gender concerns, which, you know, I, I don't want to be ignorant to, but at the same time, I look at the story and I go, you know what? It makes more sense for the story for Sam and for uh, Tribby to kind of be the ones who tag team in her defense yes. because they're the mm-hmm. ones who were so hard on her. Absolutely. And in order for Ainsley to become part of the team, it's very important that Sam kind of learns that lesson. And I think it's a great moment for him. So I don't mind the damseling as much because it's in service of something so great for the story. Yeah, I don't see it as as damseling in this circumstance. First of all, because I don't believe for a moment that Ainsley Hayes would not handle those two guys if they were still around giving her a hard time. I think that she would absolutely, she's way smarter than either one of them. She would have them running around in circles before long anyway. Um, But I think that what's really important here is that we have both Tribby and Sam kind of being jerks to Ainsley um, throughout the course of the day. And I think that they need to earn her her. You know, I, I don't think that I would have enjoyed the the ending that, you know, the I am an Englishman where they're down in her office waiting for her to show up on Saturday. I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much if Sam hadn't earned 
her. Like, they are so unworthy of her throughout this episode that I need Sam and I need Tribby to do that and to step up and to and to do something very strongly stating we are going to support this person in our office, you know? And Absolutely. also, they have the power to do that, whereas she, you know, she would need to take a few more days to figure out exactly how she was going to get these men in line. But I think I don't think for a minute that she wouldn't be able to get Joyce and Brookline around her little pinky finger before very long. Not because she's leggy and not because she's blonde, but because she is so incredibly smart and capable. Um, so I think that I, I like I think you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, just because a man rescues a woman doesn't always mean that that woman has been has been damseled and we do see a pattern that looks very familiar and kind of jump to that and I think it's important that we we keep our you know critical faculties open to that kind of thing because it does happen often but in this particular instance I think that we need that moment where Tribby and Sam work together to earn Ainsley on their team and I, I absolutely love it although I do question whether as deputy communications director Sam even has the authority to fire <laughs> Joyce and Brookline but you know maybe maybe it's just everybody who's lower than you you could just fire anybody from any department but at least I know Tribby can so the, uh, the, the yeah the, the line of of, of authority in the West Wing has always been a little bit out there. There are some yes. episodes, especially in terms of Josh and Toby, I've noticed. Sometimes mm -hmm. it seems like Josh is Toby's boss, and sometimes it seems like Toby is Josh's boss. Yeah. It, we, we all know Leo was in charge. We know exactly. that. But there's this, and we all know CJ works for Toby, and that, mm -hmm. and that Sam works for Toby. But, other, but between Josh and Toby especially, there's this weird, like, they're both senior counselors. And I was thinking about that in terms of like, wait, does Sam actually, is he yeah. actually able to fire them? And it's like, I, I assume Sam Seaborn can do whatever he wants. So. I, I figure he can. He's Rob Lowe. So right. basically, you know, he gets right. a blank check, right? He can do whatever he wants. Exactly. But yeah, I, I wasn't really quite sure of how that, that hierarchy goes. I'm going to have to go on the internet and see if I can find a West Wing hierarchy so I can figure out who actually has the power to fire everybody else. I know that Leo can fire anybody except the president. Like he can fire anybody. <laughs> But um, but aside from that, I'm not really sure how all of that works. But regardless of whether Sam actually has the power to fire them, I thought that it was a really nicely done scene. And I liked seeing both Sam and Tribby in there to, to kind of set things straight. I like that a lot. As did I. And I, and I think that, that um, you mentioned a minute ago about sort of Sam having to earn Ainsley yeah. and Tribby mm -hmm. having to earn Ainsley. And there's a nice interconnectivity there with the thread with Josh, um, mm -hmm. which I'm not sure you want to get to yet, but this idea of Josh uh, deciding rather than to, you know, in the aftermath of his shooting, rather mm -hmm. than deciding to sue the KKK um, uh, to instead sort of commit his uh, the, his resources and the White House's resources to serving up something bigger than himself. And Sam gets very excited early on, um, you know, in the sort of first act of the episode mm -hmm. where he's like, oh, we can sue them. This will be yeah. great. And he gets sort of wrapped up in his sort of personal need for, I guess, revenge or, um, or some kind of moral justification. Like, this yeah. is a great opportunity for us to attack these political enemies. Um, and I think there's something really great about it that, you know, Josh, just before he runs off to save Ainsley, mm -hmm. tells him, I can't have it be like I slipped in their driveway. It's different than that to me. I don't want to sue him. Okay. What about the insurance company? 
demo soon, no problem. And I think that, you know, whether it inspires Sam or not, I think that contributes, I think that feeds in nicely to his ability to empathize with Ainsley later on. Right. And to step kind of outside of, you know, the momentary irritation, you know, the momentary injustice of it, and really look at that bigger picture. Um, but I do love this thing. I mean, as long as we're let's go ahead and segue right into the, the whole Sam and Josh thing. Sure. Um, when he's talking about all of that, um, all of those law precedents um, that he found for suing these organizations, um, all of those are actual real um, law cases uh, done by the Southern Poverty Law Center, which uh, does amazing, amazing work in protecting vulnerable populations. Um, and anybody who wants to go and support them right now is a great time to give them support. You can find them at splcenter.org. Um, and I definitely think those are one of the best things. If you are feeling at all discouraged about anything, giving support to the Southern Poverty Law Center can absolutely, I think, help that a lot. Um, but all of these cases are actual real cases where um, people, um, you know, sued these various organizations and um, and won, you know, and, and was, was able to, like, take a chunk out of them. Of course, you know, you cut off one head of the Hydra and then another one pops right back up. But it's nice to see that these these cases were actually um, were actually pursued. One of the things that I find kind of interesting about the West Wing is that there is this idea that that the West Wing comes from a world that is like a parallel universe that had our history up until the Nixon administration up until Nixon resigned. And then after that, it's all, you know, fictional presidents, it's all fictional history, you know, um, all of these cases, um, Brown versus Invisible Empire was 1979, Vietnamese Fishermen's Association versus the KKK was 1981. And Donald versus United Clans of America was 1987. So we actually are pulling some of the real world from more recent years um, into the fiction of the West Wing, which I find is it's a really kind of nice little, little meld of that to see some of those real world um, things come into into the West Wing and into the the story that we're telling. So I, I kind of thought that was was really fun. I like Sam's enthusiasm for bringing these guys down. You know, for doing something. There's this great moment. What? He can't sue the people that shot him. People that shot him are dead. No. Hardly any of them are. And it shows that there's just so much more to be done, you know, in that area. But then, you know, of course, we end with Josh and his his duty. He doesn't want to tie up the staff, you know, indefinitely to like fight this this um, uh, this battle for him. Um, doesn't want it to look like he slipped in the driveway. You know, it's a really nice kind of big picture thing. And I think that that moves nicely into the moment where Sam goes off, you know, and looks at the big picture with Ainsley Hayes. And I think it's something that we see um, a lot in the aftermath of the shooting. I, I'm thinking of um, a moment with between Toby and Jed later where the he's talking about the keyhole satellite photos. And he says, every mm-hmm. every few days, I just look at that and I say, take them, like, go. Like, I just want to. And it's that sort of, I want to get revenge for this thing that happened to me. And I mm-hmm. want that revenge to be uh, a petty and common and simple and, and vicious and I think, you know, despite the fact that we don't really ever get a resolution to this Josh mm-hmm. versus the KKK story, right. it's, sort of a, it's sort of a thread that kind of gets lost in the West mm-hmm. Wing. It kind of goes off to Mandyland. Um, but it, it is something I think we do see come up, which is this struggle to f- feed your personal demons versus like, no, wait, 
I serve a higher purpose. Mm-hmm. And as as much as it might feel like no, you know, as a especially as someone on the liberal side to say no, you have to take down these hate groups. You have to do mm-hmm. this, you have to do that. There is that also that understanding of like, well, hold on. Like what is that serving when we right. do that? And I think there's something about Josh that makes him, you know, Josh is a character who people who love the show uh, the way I do and you do know that like Josh is fed by insecurity, that that that, mm-hmm. that feeling that his family is going to leave, you know, so many, not to spoil anything, but so much yeah. death in his life and so much sort of, you know, he just wants to protect the people that he loves. Mm-hmm. And this idea of him taking all this energy and putting into something that just serves him, mm-hmm. like, that's so not Josh. It's counter to who he is. Absolutely. And, and, and so I love the fact that Josh chooses not to take this road, even though Sam more of the maybe the ideologue and someone who's a little bit more ambitious in that direction, um, even though he's all about it. I also love that Sam accepts his conclusion. And when Josh says like, oh, you know, the insurance company, I'll sue them. No problem. Exactly. And then Sam has and that great moment where he kind of nods and he's like, yes, okay, good. We'll do that at least. You know? <laughs> Absolutely should sue the insurance company because that is horrifying. But that is also another discussion for another day. Um, so one of the things in this episode that I found fascinating and weird and and really kind of troubling in its last moments was this story of CJ battling General Barry, right? Yep. So we have this guy, three-star general, who's about to retire and is, you know, sending off some parting shots or planning to send off some parting shots at the president on the, you know, basic media tour, you know? Mm-hmm. And CJ is so good. And I mean, she is so strong. She is so serious. Often we have CJ kind of, you know, being the butt of the joke not not too long ago. We looked at Shibboleth in which there were turkeys left in her in her office that she had to deal with at Thanksgiving, you know. Um, and now, you know, we've got her standing up to this general, absolutely taking on this fight and winning. I mean, she gets in a room with this guy who, by the way, calls her kitten. How about we discuss new defense Spending being down to 300 billion from 400 billion 10 years ago. Is that personal? No, sir. I think that's about the Cold War ending 10 years ago and America not needing to spend quite so much money defending itself against a country that can't bake bread. Kitten, op tempo is up, which is fine. But the problem is purse tempo is up too. Do you know what that is? It's a rate of turnover in individual jobs. Yes, sir. Purse tempo is up because higher paying civilian jobs are luring men and women trained in high tech. We're more than happy to take the rap for a booming economy, sir. Uh. <laughs> Which made me insane. I was watching it. I was like, did he just call her? Did he just call her kitten? Uh. And so I rewound it. And then I looked up the script and I was like, he called her kitten he calls which, her lady too oh my god no it's just it's so <laughs> horrifying you know and she doesn't even blink you know she takes him on and then she she wins you know she gets the best of him she she finds his his um stolen valor this uh this medal that he's wearing that apparently he didn't earn um which I find to be kind of a weird note in this because here is a man who is a three-star general. He is covered in medals. Like there is no, you can hardly even see any fabric on his jacket because of the medals that are there. Why would this guy engage in stolen valor? Not to mention the fact that if anybody is sensitive to stolen valor, it's somebody in the military. Like I cannot fathom a three-star general who would do that so i didn't find that really believable did that work for you 
It's one of those things, and you know, I, we might also talk about uh, Joyce and Brookline being sort of these like straw men villains. Oh and yeah, I, and I think mm-hmm. that Barry sort of falls into that as well because there's there it it does take a a little bit away from CJ. I mean, I've I have had I've been watching The West Wing since I was in high school when the mm-hmm. reruns were on the Bravo Network back when Bravo oh. was arts and entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had the biggest crush on Allison Janney my entire life. Like she's oh, yeah. just glorious. Like the mm-hmm. way she knocks people down on this show. And rewatching it, you know, today and 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 yesterday, I rewatched it twice. And 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 I was like. It does take something away from CJ's victory that it's such an obvious thing because yeah. she schools him so hard on, you know, purse tempo and up tempo and this yeah. and that. And she knows and, and the way she's I mean, even even the, 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 the physical like the blocking of the scene, like her, her physical poise as a mm-hmm. person, you can see that uh, CJ is standing up straighter when she's talking to him. Oh, yeah. And she's prepared. She goes right back at him with the whole, you know. Uh, that spending is down, but no, you know, it has to do with the Cold War ending and and she's right there with it. And then so for the conflict to be resolved, for her to put him in his place with something maybe not necessarily as much to do with the facts of the story Mm -hmm. as it does to do with his personal shame. I do find just as a story note, it does sort of diminish her victory a little bit. Yeah, and I think him being such a straw man, and we have this too with Brookline and Joyce, they're just so incredibly like, you know, capital B bad, that there's no shades of gray there. But in an episode in which we have such a strong sense of service and duty, and if anybody could appeal to that element, you know, within this man who is part of the military, like if anybody understands service and duty better than somebody in the military, like... That seemed to me like the place where where that appeal might come, where she might, you know, be able to to reach him. But of course, he's written as such an over the top, just complete bad guy calling her kitten and being such a jerk about everything. And then and then she has this victory, you know, which she's earned. I mean, she goes toe to toe with this guy. She has all of her facts. She has all of the arguments. She's absolutely keeping up with him. She she bests him, then goes in to talk to the president. And the president's like, eh, you know, go ahead, let him go. And it seems to me like the president could have maybe told her that before she wasted an entire day dealing with a man who calls her kitten. You know, (laughs) so I don't know. That felt really like I I can completely see CJ at some point just losing it and throttling one of these guys. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I definitely agree. And I think that it's it's, you know, again, it goes back to this idea of like what victories are real victories versus Mm -hmm. what victories are sort of writing cheats, you know, like, right. Mm -hmm. But I will I will say in defense of this particular uh, beat and and also the beat with Brookline and Joyce and their their straw man ness. Um, mm-hmm. I do think we go back to this idea of the episode being one of the ones about duty again. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the idea of people choosing. We we see people on the right side choosing their duty over their personal gain. Mm-hmm. And we see people on the wrong side, Brookline and Joyce and, and sure. even Sam and Tribby for a while, mm-hmm. and then especially General Barry, choosing themselves over their duty. So if it's there to form a contrast as as sort of maybe sloppy and maybe as anticlimactic or maybe whatever as it might be, I do think there's value to those. I just wish they had been executed a little bit better. 
Yeah, I do too. Um, and you know, that brings me to John Larroquette as as Lionel Tribby. Um, despite the huge impression that he makes in this episode, I always thought that he was in like at least five to 10 episodes of The West Wing, but this is the only one where he appears, although he does get mentioned, I think, and, you know, in passing a couple of times before Oliver Platt comes in and, and takes over as Oliver Babish. Um, but he's so powerful in this episode, but kind of has this this same cartoonish cardboardy quality that we see in Joyce and Brookline that we see in in Colonel Barry or General Barry um, that he's almost so over the top. He comes in to Leo's office early when Leo's talking to Ainsley and busts in and he says, I will kill people today, Leo. I will kill people with this cricket bat, which was given to me by Her Royal Majesty Elizabeth Windsor, and then I will kill them again with my own hands. You know, he's got the the cricket bat and all of that stuff going on. Um, and he's just so over the top. And then that moment where he busts in on the president. Mr. President, have you lost what little was left of your mind? I can't possibly work like this. Oh, dear God. While people are in there, while the president is doing a radio address. And I am sorry, but there is no way that Mrs. Landingham would not have had him shot if he had tried to go <laughs> in the Oval Office at that moment. There is no way he would have gotten past her. Mrs. Landingham would have tackled him herself if she oh, had. No, she she would have taken him down. Seriously, <laughs> I believe that woman has a taser in her top desk drawer. Absolutely. So he goes in there and it's it, it it is almost cartoonish. Now, I love every minute of Lionel Tribby because John Larroquette does such an amazing job with him. But I mean, doesn't he seem like a bit much in this episode? Like just not believable? I'm wondering, and I, I, I'm in the same boat. I love yeah. him. I mean, when he walks, I will kill people. I, you know, I, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, then he goes on that whole rant about uh, Justice uh, Dryford and how if he continues to be disrespectful to you know this and this and this, mm-hmm. he has that wonderful, you know, he's a great Sorkin actor because yes. he can deliver mm-hmm. that long stuff. Um, I agree with you that he is cartoonish and that he's a little bit over the top. But I will say, in an episode in which Ainsley Hayes is pushed into the steam pipe trunk distribution venue, yes. um, and so th- there are so many sort of over-the-top, almost cartoonish things that illustrate Ainsley Hayes' struggle, yeah. and I feel like he's there particularly to be that liberal, f- blowhard, firebrand, yes. and to serve as a nice contrast that mm-hmm. sort of proves Ainsley's mettle, you know? I- yeah. I'm thinking of, you know, not to bring up the real world, but I'm thinking of of, of Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump in those debates in which oh, sure. he sort of had to just go like, okay, let me explain to you how the world really works if you're done having your little temper tantrum, you know? And that's kind of the same way I see Tribby versus, I mean, obviously they're on different sides ideologically and you flip them mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And I love Lionel Tribby and I love his politics and I believe mm-hmm. in what he believes in, but I, I think it's nice to see her her poise. I mean, especially the moment where she begins speaking in iambic pentameter. Mr. Tribby, I'd like to do well on this, my first assignment. Any advice you could give me that might point me the way of success would be by me appreciated. Well, not speaking in iambic pentameter might be a step in the right direction. Yeah. Oh, gosh, no, that is wonderful. I love that moment. And it's a great way for them to build their rapport, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think it's how, I think his lashing out over the topness is a way to contrast with her cool, sophisticated poise and to really have them earn respect for each other. Um, Oh, yeah. There's that great moment where she says, President's way too moderate for your taste. 
Excuse me? On affirmative action, capital gains, public schools, free trade, you left a lucrative practice in Chicago and a seven-figure income. It wasn't out of duty? Like, you know, you left all these opportunities. Uh, it wasn't out of a sense of duty. And I mm -hmm. think from that moment on, he's on her side. And so yeah. she has to kind of tame the savage beast in order to, you know, get somewhere. And I think that, I think it's a great, you know, for as cartoonish as it is, I think it's a great way to uh, create some conflict for Ainsley. I think it is. And I think it's really nice to have somebody who is on the liberal side of things be patently ridiculous as well, <laughs> that we have, we have our own blowhards, every side has them, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of Keith Olbermann, I think a little yeah. bit who I agree with, uh, but am not uh, real excited about the ways in which he expresses himself uh, all the time. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I loved John Larroquette. I love Lionel Tribby. But you know, there are a couple of moments where I'm like, Oh, come on, you know, this, this can't be it. Um, but it's, it's really, really fun to kind of see him in that way. And when he walks into the, um, the steam pipe trunk distribution venue, uh, to talk to her and to give her that assignment, her happiness, when he gives her that assignment, she's so happy that she runs into iambic pentameter. I'd like to do well on this, my first assignment, any advice you could give me that might point me the way of success would be by me appreciated. Well, not speaking in iambic pentameter might be a step in the right direction. Yeah. It's such a wonderful and, and kind of deeply vulnerable moment because this vulnerability comes from so many different sources. But when you care so deeply about something, that is a huge source of vulnerability. And for her to express that with him, you know, after they'd had this sort of meeting of the minds over the idea of duty and service, I thought it was just beautifully expressed. And I absolutely I love their interactions. I will say real quick that um, I think that she earns his, uh, he earns her respect as well. Um, mm -hmm. Because later on, uh, when Sam says, why did you go to talk to those two guys? She says, I took the initiative. She doesn't say I was assigned. She, yes. protects, she protects Tribby in that moment. And mm -hmm. I think that whether it's, whether it's out of respect for him or just respect for the job and her duty and all that stuff, um, I think that shows, I mean, if there's one thing we can say about Ainsley Hayes is that she's just classy as all hell. I mean, she is just yeah. so professional and so classy, and she does everything right uh, in the face of so egregious of wrongs. Um, and I think that there's a nice, you know, by the end of that episode, I do see a begrudging respect between the two of them. Oh, absolutely. And I, I I love that relationship. And the only thing like I so regret that we never get to see them together again, because I think that that would have been a really, really fun relationship, you know, to develop over time. But there's so much great stuff going on in the West Wing. Um, one of the things that I really thought was was fun, although somewhat tonally divergent, we have this, you know, all of these stories that are talking about duty and service and, you know, and what it means to, to see everything bigger than yourself. And then we've got this kind of almost sitcom-y thing going on with the president, one of them being yeah. the the radio address. Now, of course, um, the history of the presidential radio address is, is this. The weekly radio address started with Franklin Delano Roosevelt back when radio was really the only national mass communication format, and he would do his weekly fireside chats, and that became a thing. Um, and it was resurrected by Ronald Reagan in the 80s, and every president since has continued with some sort of, of weekly address. It has gone from radio onto YouTube, some uh, Facebook stuff, you know. But generally, there is this this weekly, with the exception of George H.W. Bush, who just did not care for it, was not, was not interested in that. Um, every other president has done it every week. 
Everyone knows that George H.W. Bush was a robot invented by the CIA. No, he absolutely was. He absolutely was. But, you know, I respected H.W., I gotta say. I, I, at least I respected him. I didn't agree with him, but I respected him. Sure. Um, but it is hard to believe, I mean, for me, that this guy, Jed Bartlett, who can spout off the top of his head a world-class speech about almost any topic, can't read the words put before him for a radio address? Like, that seems to me kind of unbelievable. Well, Donna does say that it's the end of the week and he gets a little punchy. Maybe that's true. Maybe we're just meant to. But, but it is. You know what? You know what this reads and all of Jed uh, and Abby, um, the, the the conflict between the two of them in terms of, yeah. their, um, I guess we'll call it delayed gratification. Yes. Um, it reads like a, a, a story thread that Sorkin wrote and then put on a shelf. Yeah. And then just kind of shoved in this. Right. Knew that at some point he wanted to use it. And then he put it in this episode because he had space for it. Yeah, it, it does. It's so tonally divergent from everything else. Um, but one of the things, though, that I found like really kind of interesting is this idea of leaf peeping. You know, we're making fun of the idea of leaf peeping. And I did a little research. I have a good friend named Rebecca Lavoy, who is the co-host of the the fantastic um, podcast Crime Writers On, where they talk about different kinds of true crime podcasts and stories and stuff. And it's fantastic. You have to listen to it. And also, these are their stories, a Law and Order podcast. And she is um, a journalist in New Hampshire. She's lived in New Hampshire for a long time. And I had a question for her about, first of all, what is leaf peeping? And second of all, is it even reasonable that a president who had been a governor of New Hampshire would not know what leaf peeping was? And she sent me this answer. Hey, Lonnie, Rebecca Lavoie here, podcaster behind Crime Writers On and the These Are Their Stories podcasts and very proud longtime New Hampshire resident. So leaf peeping. Leaf peeping is the act of getting in one's car and driving around and looking at leaves. It also includes the hiking around and looking at leaves. It basically just means getting yourself to a place where you can look at the leaves as they are turning the bright colors of autumn. Now, no self-respecting former New Hampshire governor would not know what leaf peeping is because tourism is an enormous Hunk. It is a cornerstone of the New Hampshire economy, somewhere in the $5 billion range of the relatively small economy of our state. And leaf peeping is a cornerstone of tourism. So if there is, say, a fictional former New Hampshire governor who claims to not know what leaf peeping is, he or she is either lying, trying to be one of the cool kids who doesn't know who, like, Taylor Swift is or whatever— or B, as an alternative theory, perhaps uh, not written well <laughs> or not researched well by the fine folks who wrote said character. So, yep, leaf peeping is a thing. Everyone who lives here knows what it is, knows about it, does it, has people who do it, has family who comes up to visit to do it, and in some way benefits from the fact that leaf peeping is a thing. Hope you find this helpful. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Rebecca Lavoie. Again, that is Rebecca Lavoie of Crime Writers On. Absolutely go check her out. She is amazing. So, yeah, I think that even in this alternate universe of the West Wing, that a New Hampshire governor would be really, really familiar with leaf peeping. 
you know, it's the end of the week again. Yeah. You know, like, he's just a little off. He's a little, he doesn't quite know, but I totally agree. I did similar research and I was like, no, he would absolutely know because New England and Japan are apparently yes. the two places in the world where this is very popular. This is a um, thing. <laughs> and someone who's so well versed in New England ephemera would totally know what leaf peeping is. So we'll just, exactly. we'll forgive him for this. We'll just let it go. But I thought it was, it was kind of fun and always any excuse to hear from Rebecca Lavoie, I'm going to jump on it. Absolutely. Um, so the other thing in this week's episode that was that was really super sitcommy was this whole thing with the the sexual escapades between uh, Mrs. Bartlett and and the president. Um, there's this moment she comes in to Charlie and she says, "You're going to want to write this down." Your blood pressure is 120 over 80. How did you know that, man? I'm saying his blood pressure uh, is 120 over 80. Yeah. Your EKG shows a good sinus rhythm. Okay. No evidence of ischemic changes. How are we spelling it? Doesn't matter. Your electrolytes and metabolic panels are within normal limits. Chest x-ray is clear and prostate screens are fine. Okay. So we can have sex now. Okay, that's not me and you, right? That... Go. Yeah. And he's joking, I guess, but that's that's the first lady. Like, I don't know if you would necessarily joke like that with a first lady that feels a little bit weird. Um, and then, of course, we have this, you know, this brief moment. Good afternoon, Mrs. Bartlett. Good afternoon, Mrs. Lanning. How are you today? Oh, I'm just fine. Thank you. Are you looking for the president? I imagine he'll be along in a moment. Really? Oh, yeah. Good afternoon, Mr. President. Good afternoon, Mrs. Lanningham. Is there anything I can... Go away right now. And it felt like something from an episode of Friends to me. Like, it, the way, the timing and everything. I mean, it's funny. You know, it really is funny. But it felt almost a little too sitcom-y. Did you... Did you get into this was this okay for you i have zero defense for the sitcominess of this All I, can say is I love this moment i love the way um uh the camera lingers on abby for a second yes as charlie delivers the message and you see her kind of her eyes kind of drift up in the air and she's yeah. looking around and she's like because she knows exactly what's about to happen mm-hmm. um and so while i cannot you know I, I i certainly agree with you in terms of like this is a little uh, a little sitcom it's like yeah. the video address i i just have to just love it because it's you know it's it's there and it's amazing and it's one of the things about the west wing that makes it so funny but um yeah I, it works for me because i'm predisposed to love things like this i can't yes. exactly i can't exactly defend it from from a story perspective or from a tonal perspective <laughs> well, at I think all. totally like because the rest of the episode has this deep emotional resonance and it is so strong and it's so you know about duty and about service and all this stuff and then we have this you know almost ridiculous you know like the president cannot drop everything because his wife is available to have sex for a few hours you know and then they're trying to get their their schedules together and of course she ends up leaving you know and, and we have this wonderful moment where I have to go to a special meeting of the government, of the folks, government. you know, <laughs> exactly. And he runs out. And I mean, it's all adorable. It is absolutely all adorable. But tonally, it feels like a little whiplashy. Um, but then, of course, you know, we finish it up with this, this, you know, nice radio address that he does to make up for the fact that he, you know, disparaged Nellie Bly when he was about to get sex. But also the idea that these people, you know, haven't had sex in a really long time. She is obviously also very excited about the idea that they can get on with their regular, you know, um, recreational activities. But then 
you know, presumably withholds sex from him because he, you know, smack talked Nellie Bly. Um, all of it feels a little bit, a, a little bit too much like it belongs in an episode of Friends and less like it belongs in an episode of The West Wing. But at the same time, you know, you're right. It's adorable and they are adorable and the timing of it is perfect. I mean, it is all like the humor and the dialogue and everything is absolutely perfect. It's just the tone feels so off especially next to the other things that are happening in this episode it is though it is in service of something like you Mm -hmm. mentioned something important that yeah that jed is sort of forced you know oftentimes you know bartlett and you've brought this up before bartlett's kind of unintentional bigotry is kind of forgiven a little bit as kind Mm -hmm. of like oh shucks dad like you're you're just you're just silly and you just don't know you know um and so you know I, i don't think that that jed means poorly i i think he he does legitimately obviously want to respect the women in his life and the women oh, yeah. in the world and all that but i i do think while tonally it might be a little sort of inconsistent it, it does get you to the radio address at the end and it does sort yeah. of pay off the getting the radio address right kind of yes. thing maybe the mm-hmm. right radio address to give was the one which honors the women who have been mm-hmm. so disproportionately screwed with for this entire yes. episode you know it's a nice little thread that pays off at the end mm-hmm. um so yeah maybe they could have executed it a little bit more tonally consistent but i i i, I like where it gets to and of course the end is what we remember and so that's exactly and it's it's really fun i mean it absolutely is really fun and and done you know just perfectly like the comic timing is perfect everything is perfect just totally a little bit off for me but um but i really enjoyed it and i love of course you know where we get to at the end with the radio address and we and it's a nice bookend we open with the radio address we close with the radio address i always like when we've got that that element of uh, of closure within an episode that it it feels very deliberately done. And I really, really enjoyed that. Indeed. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for this week's episode of Jed Bartlett is my president. Sadly, it's time to leave the warm and cuddly confines of the steam pipe trunk distribution venue and get back to the real world where there's real work to be done. But I hope this little break has given you the will to move forward with purpose and fulfill your duty, whatever that may be. And on that note, here are some words of inspiration from Mother Teresa. If we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. Thank you so much, Rob DiCristino, for hanging out with me this week. Tell the fine folks where they can go and find you. Thank you so much for having me on, Lonnie. It was so great. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Rob DiCristino. Uh, and please uh, check us out over at fthismovie.net, uh, one of the most wonderful movie film-loving communities uh, on the whole internet. Um, and uh, thank you again very much for having me on. Oh, well, thank you. All right. I will be back next week with co-host of the Hamilton podcast, Robbie Herlocker, and our thoughts on episode 22 of season three, Posse Comitatus, in which our band of married government officials head to Broadway, probably not to star in a Gilbert and Sullivan play, but wouldn't that be something? Until then, here's a word from your president. Belva Lockwood, for instance, the first woman to practice law. She argued a case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1879 decades before she'd have the right to vote. Ellen Swallow Richards, the first woman to be a professional chemist. Mariah Mitchell, who discovered a comet in 1847 and was the first woman admitted to the Academy of Arts and Sciences. Oh, I could go on and on and on and on. The fact remains that of all the monuments built with public money, only 50 of them pay tribute to the women who helped build this country and open its doors to all our daughters who would follow. 
In the coming months, I'll try to persuade Congress to rectify that. In the meantime, enjoy your weekend. God bless you, and God bless America. Jed Bartlett is My President is a Chipperish Media production. To get exclusive Chipperish content and access to a community of amazing people, go to patreon.com slash chipperish. All clips in this podcast were used under the fair use exemption for criticism and commentary of the U.S. Copyrights Act. 